Hello and welcome to another podcast episode. Now this one's quite different to the others because I actually filmed this in a studio with a film crew. They approached me saying that they were doing a series called Impact Stories and that they'd like to cover my story. So of course I took them up on this offer. So there is actually a visual to go alongside this podcast which is available on my YouTube channel. If you'd rather watch along, you can check it out there. Now this format is actually very challenging because you've got somebody asking me questions and I need to answer in full sentences because those questions will be removed in the final edit but I think I did a really good job I'm continuously trying to improve in this format and give it my best shot trying to explain my story in the most clear and concise way that I possibly can so I hope you enjoy this we are moving forward with every step of this journey thank you My name's Jeremy Indicat and I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse and I'm sharing my story in public to help raise awareness for this topic. I founded a movement called Something to Say which is a platform to help break down the taboo and the silence that surrounds it. So I created this movement called Something to Say and it initiated because I found so much confidence in sharing my story throughout the years that I wanted to give a space for others to do so if they wish to. Uh, So I created this online platform and started to tell people that if they would like to share their story in written format, that they could come onto the platform and share it. Now, it started working really well. More and more people started sharing and it actually started going from country to country, which was phenomenal. And with the title, Something to Say, I think that really encourages people to... Um, it's a strong statement, it's quite bold and, and it encouraged people to come forward with strength and courage, which is what the platform was about. Like We know that this subject is full of sadness and sorrow. This crime against children is one of the most horrific things that's happening on our planet and we all agree with that. But I wanted to try to turn it on its head and inject a bit of strength and courage into the stories because I believe anybody that's been through child sexual abuse who's on the other side of it to tell their story today is just pure strength and courage. So let's promote that and let's inspire others who are who are reading the story too. So I called the platform Something to Say and it was originally because the person who was helping me design all the branding, um, the incredible Naria, I thank her still to this day, she created something phenomenal. And she said to me, well, what do you want to call of all of this work that you're putting out online? And I thought to myself, well, It all started because I had something to say. And so I thought that would just be a very fitting title for to 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 label the work that I was producing online. Now, interestingly, a few people have pointed out that I could have chosen the title Say Something, because I want to encourage people to speak out, the people that would like to speak out. Um, But I think that's quite forward. I think um, something to say is a bit broader. Because some people come onto the platform and they want to talk about their story. Some people come onto the platform and they want to talk about being an adult looking back at their childhood. And some people come onto the platform and they're actually professionals working in the field. And they've got something to say off the back of their 20, 30 year career working with victims of child sexual abuse. So it's very open and I think it's very gentle something to say, but also holds a lot of power and purpose. Before I embarked on this, let's call it a journey of speaking out about my history of sexual abuse in my childhood, I was actually an engineer. Now, I started engineering 
when I left college, I got an apprenticeship with an aerospace company called Marshall Aerospace in Cambridge. Now they trained me up to be a designer of aircraft parts, systems and structures. And it was just the most phenomenal opportunity. I loved the apprenticeship. It was so technical. It really kept me focused. Everything about it was great. Then when I finished that apprenticeship, I went from company to company designing different vehicles. I moved over to the car industry and I eventually got a, a job working for McLaren in Woking designing their supercars. So this was like the pinnacle of my career. And my actual dream was Formula One. It was always a dream of mine to go and work in that industry because I always thought to watch the Grand Prix on a Sunday, knowing that you had the designer of parts of those cars and cheering for the team that you're part of would be a great job and a great thing to be involved in. So that was always my dream. But when I got to McLaren and I started speaking about my story to close friends, I then started, my attention started to change direction because I started to get interested in how other people were doing out there when I started sharing my story. And my career in engineering, just the importance of it just started to fade away as my attention was redirected. And that's when, after my contract at McLaren, after I'd finished working on the car that I was designing there, I decided that I would try to create something online, go public with my story online and see what I could do in the space where there's so much silence I had seen, so much taboo, so much stigma. I just thought I could possibly create something very interesting and unique that would get attention on the topic because this topic is everybody's concern. Everybody either has a child in their family, has a nephew or a niece, or has children themselves, or everyone was a child once upon a time. And we want to protect future generations and make it a safer world. And that's where my U-turn came from, from a very focused, career-driven young man in engineering to this new pursuit of something to say. So when I look back at myself as a person, even from my younger years at school, I can see that I always just like improving at things and getting good at things, whether that be sport, academics, with my friends, whatever I was into. And you can see that pattern of behaviour going through my engineering career as I was always striving to climb up the corporate ladder, become more skillful as an engineer and become the best that I can be. And I think that behaviour has now transferred over to this project. But this project's different because this project is helping people. It has this unique purpose, which is what I feel like deep in my heart. And when I get comments or messages from people just saying, you know what, your work has given me another way of looking at what happened to me. I'm like, that's job done, you know, that's just the most incredible thing ever. Now, the engineering career with that dream of Formula One and working for McLaren, I mean, some people strive for their whole career work, uh, looking to work at a company like McLaren. That was all good, but essentially the product I was designing was kind of meaningless, <laughs> you know, when I look at what I'm doing now. So yes, I feel hugely empowered. Um, I feel hugely driven. I mean, I'm coming up to five years doing this work now, and not once have I rolled my eyes at an alarm. Not once have I had Sunday blues. Like, I can't wait to get into it. I wake up uh, in a, on, on a buzz thinking about what's next to be done with this project, this part of the project. What can we build next? You know, let's launch the podcast. Let's let's launch this platform. Like, it's, it's phenomenal. I, I honestly feel so fortunate that my life has taken this direction.
So once I'd been speaking to close friends for three years about my story, just on and off, like I'd speak to a friend and then it'd be six months I'd speak to another friend, then I'd revisit one of the friends that I'd spoken to a year ago and talk to him about it again and just continue the conversation. I was getting more and more comfortable with telling my story and that's when I decided that I should actually do something more about this and take it public. Now, my idea in doing that was to begin speaking at open mic nights in London. Now, this was all a crazy coincidence because when I decided to go public, it was like two weeks before that, I'd been to an open mic night in London. So for anybody that doesn't know what an open mic night is, it's an event open to the public and you can turn up and sign up and you get five minutes on stage to perform what you want. You can go as a comedian, a storyteller, you can sing, play an instrument, and I thought I would go as this storyteller and begin telling my story in the stages around London. But I wanted to just commit so fully to this that I thought I wanted to do it full time and speak at as many events as possible. And what that meant was for me to drop my engineering career. So this was something that when I spoke to my friends about and then started speaking to my family about, everybody was hugely concerned about it. Um, I was leaving this high-flying job, this incredible career and this very nice lifestyle that I had worked hard for. And to leave all of that behind just seems so crazy for some people. Some people were like, but why don't you just work and then do this thing in the evening? But I was just so passionate and focused and wanted to commit fully to it. So I collected everything that I had um, I gave my flat back to the landlord that I was renting. I sold half of my stuff. I collected all of my life savings that I'd collected a phenomenal amount through my engineering career because I was being paid well. And I just started sleeping around people's houses. I packed everything that I needed into my car and I started moving around every 10 days. So I'd stay at my mum's, I'd stay at a friend's, I'd stay at another friend's. And this worked really well because it kept the environment fresh. I moved like that so that I didn't outstay my welcome anywhere and it also meant I could hit the different open mic nights in that local area and I just began building momentum doing this. Now it's interesting because I obviously went from a very well-paid engineer kind of buying what I wanted, going to nice restaurants, hanging out with my friends, going here, going there, going on city breaks around Europe like it was a really nice lifestyle all the way to living out of my car, moving from place to place, using my life savings. And my life savings, obviously, I had no income, so they were only going down. And, you know, people were worried and concerned about this. But I just knew that I could do something very unique with this. I had this confidence that I could engineer something very unique. And it's funny because people always say to me, do you think that your engineering career um, was kind of a waste of time almost? Or do you wish that you'd known this five years earlier? And I'm like, no, because actually, I think it's my engineering career that taught me all the transferable skills to bring into this project. Problem solving, trying to find a solution to an issue, brainstorming ideas and going with the strongest one. And that's all engineering. And I feel like that's what I'm doing with this project in some way. So the Something to Say platform, I believe, is unique in the way that we share people's stories 
People write into us with subjects they want to talk about. People write in with questions that they feel we should ask the audience. And some people have even submitted their poems and their artwork. So it's a completely community-driven platform, which I just think is a, such a great thing. And it feels really strong and powerful when you, when you run through all of the work. Now, as far as raising awareness, I think just the fact that we're opening the conversation and we're doing it from people with lived experience. And also we have some professionals on our platform that are writing in with what they've learned through a career of working with people that have been through this type of experience in their childhood. And I think that's where the raising awareness comes from. Open conversations, not, no fear in having this discussion anymore. Let's talk about it, let's spread the word, let's talk about our personal experiences. And that strength and courage, I believe, is where we can break down the stigma and the silence that allows this to thrive. I feel like if I can get my story in front of young people, children and teenagers, obviously delivered in an age-appropriate way, I think this is the most powerful way to reach young people. They're always following stories. I mean, we're all always following stories. TV, film, we love that. So why... I shouldn't go around telling my story and my experience. I think it's so much to gain from that. It's so powerful to hear somebody's real lived experience, but told in an inspirational way. Because of course, my story has sorrow and sadness all over it. But when I can inject some inspiration about telling someone for the first time and how that felt, going public with my story, how it felt to continue telling my story, my chase of my former dream of Formula One and dropping that and pursuing this platform as something to say. I think at the very least it can inspire young people and they'll remember this story. Now of course we know, statistics tell us, that I will also be speaking to at least one child or teenager in that audience that's currently going through something right now and not telling us about it through whatever reason that they have. Now, if I go into their school and I talk openly with confidence about my story, could it inspire them to turn around and go and tell a teacher or tell a parent about what's going on with them so we can help them get out of that situation? Even if the chance is 10% more, we've surely got to take that. Now, for the rest of the young people sitting in that audience, again, it can just be a story of inspiration to let them know whatever's going on in your life, whatever hurtful things are happening to you it's not the end right you can have a successful life following that so I think there's so much to gain from going into schools and telling this story but also it's not just young people and teenagers that I'm speaking to I'm also going to speak to teachers and staff because they're looking after children every day and the safeguarding courses that they go through are brilliant I've been on them myself but what the safeguarding courses don't have, because I don't suppose that they could do this, is real lived experience and how it feels to have gone through something on a personal level. And every time I go and speak to staff and teachers, they're like, thank you. Because at the very least, hearing your story has made me feel more confident to deal with the potential dangers or disclosures that are coming up in the future to do my job. So I just think, us telling our stories is, is hugely powerful. There's so much potential there. And I want to take this opportunity to uh, reach that potential and use my story for some good. 
It's really interesting when we look at statistics because we know that when I go and speak in a school, I will be speaking to at least one young person that's currently going through a sexual abuse situation and they're not telling anyone about it. But I will also be speaking to at least one young person who will turn into an abuser as they get older or even they are misbehaving in sexual situations right now. Now, my story is one where I'm very open about what happened. I'm very open about how that made me feel at the time and when I turned into an adult. And I'm very open about the man that did this to me and how I feel about him and where he potentially came from. And I also talk about the catastrophic nature of how this has affected everybody in my family and also my life. And I hope that that actually plants a seed for these young people who, again, as I say, may potentially turn into somebody who misbehaves or commits a crime, a sex crime to someone else, turns into an abuser, or somebody is currently misbehaving in sex right now. And I feel like that's a preventative measure because we need to accept that not only do we need to talk to the victims, but we also need to talk to the perpetrators, and that's the full picture. The sexual abuse that happened in my childhood happened to me when I was eight years old. And it was by another man. He was 25 years old. And we sometimes think, well, how do you even get an eight-year-old to do sexual things with you? Like how they're so still so childlike, it seems impossible, but it's the grooming process. And we know a lot about it, but I don't think we have an appreciation for how sophisticated it is and how it preys on a child's nature very, very well. Because I believe when I look back at this that I looked up to him, he was the older boy, he was cool in my eyes and he must have lured me in, maybe through touch, maybe through compliments, maybe through praise to get to do these things that he had painted in my mind as our little secret or things that only cool people did. And I just look back at myself and think I was completely hook, line and sinker. He had me completely groomed, completely manipulated to do these things with him. Now, he was a trusted member of the family, you could say. He was actually somebody who my dad was working with and he knew him through there. So he was a nurse working in the lo local hospital and my dad was a doctor. So they had a working relationship. They were both from Sri Lanka, both around the same age. They had some common interests. Now, my parents had actually divorced, so I was spending some time at my mum's and some time at my dad's. Now, it was when I was staying at my dad's, he would need help with childcare because sometimes he'd need to be on call or he'd need to work late. And this man was a training nurse, so he actually needed some accommodation, some help with accommodation. So my dad was like, yeah, come and stay at ours. We've got a spare room. So this all worked out perfectly for him. And the sexual abuse just continued. And the sexual abuse went on for two years until I was 10 years old. Now, I was never showing any indication to anybody about what was going on. I had it locked behind closed doors. I was doing well at school. I had lots of friends. I was very social and I was playing all the sports. And to people from the outside, I was your usual kid. In fact, I was um, very successful as a, as a young boy. So all of this was completely hidden. I think we commonly think of child sexual abuse being some violent, aggressive, forceful act. 
Now, I'm not saying that that isn't some people's experience, but the more I hear these stories, I hear that actually it's quite the opposite. It's often quite gentle. It's quite coercive. It's quite in the child's eyes, loving, or something that they need, or something that they're asking for. It's a huge manipulation of the child's brain. Now, in my case, to give some more explanation on how that could be, we were kissing, we were touching, we were fondling. And I just remember as a very young boy, that felt very caring. That felt very comforting, the cuddling, the touching. And of course, when he got to my genitals, even though I was eight years old and I hadn't been through puberty or matured sexually, it gave me a tingling sensation. It made me feel like maybe this was something that I liked. The complete trickery of the whole situation. But also, I was eight years old in 1993. So there was no education in schools about these things. There was no conversations in homes about these things. So I had no tools or knowledge to understand about what I was involved in was completely wrong and I needed to tell somebody about it. So it just continued. And he pushed me and pushed me to do more and more things. And some of the things we were doing were so horrific in nature. So when we get to things like oral sex, I mean, that sends a tingle up your spine when you think about an eight-year-old and a 25-year-old man. I mean, how disgusting in some sense. Now, what's really, I want to say interesting, but I don't think interesting is the correct word, is when I think about myself in those times, I think about what it felt like to receive oral sex. Now, to get a little graphic for a moment here, I'm not sure that an eight-year-old, because they haven't gone through puberty yet, can actually get an erection. I'm not sure. But it would have felt warm and comforting, right? I have genitals. It's a penis. It works in... I'm a human being, you know? But then, again, I'm going to use the word interesting. What's interesting when you look back at this situation is when he was training me to do it to him. That's when I started feeling uncomfortable. That's when I was like, oh, this is gross. But again, we wonder why didn't I say something in those moments? And again, I believe it was from a lack of education, knowledge. It was a different era back then. I had no tools or knowledge to understand what I was involved in. And realistically, I stood no chance. I don't ever remember him directly telling me to keep it a secret. But again, what level of depth do you remember things at eight years old? But I knew I was to keep it a secret because I thought it was something unique that we were doing together that only certain cool people did. So he must have packaged it in this way. I just don't remember any direct words coming towards me. I never told a soul. I didn't tell a friend. I didn't tell a teacher. I didn't tell a parent. I told nobody. So I kind of knew the rules. I knew what this was about. I knew that it pleased him. I knew that it made him happy. I knew that I was getting some sort of unusual feedback from it that I was okay with. Now, I think it would have been different if there was any force or pain or violence involved. And maybe that would have increased my chances of saying something, but there was none of that. I remember once he tried to put his finger in my anus, but it hurt me. I told him and he stopped. And so I wonder if we tried to get into his mind where he was playing with this, you know, was he trying to push me and that's where he got his excitement from? 
Uh, was he just making sure that he could get his gratification from my very childlike body and that was enough for him? As long as I stayed silent, everything was cool? We don't really know. The only person that has the answer to those questions is him. But I think we must remember what it's like to be a child. Um, you're easily impressionable. Uh, your norm has been created by the adults that are around you. You know how many stories you hear of uh, yourself as a child or somebody would tell a story of them going to another house, to another family, and them seeing how that family does things and realising that actually the way my family's working is completely uh, weird or wrong. I'm not saying sexual abuse related, I'm just saying you know, that the environment that the child is growing up in is their norm, and that was my norm. At the time the sexual abuse was going on, it wasn't a problem for me. I didn't see it as an issue. It was just something that happened between me and this man when he used to stay around. No issues at all. And in fact, once it had finished, the abuse went on for two years, and I believe that's because he moved away, he completed his nurse training, and he moved to another hospital. I didn't really think anything of it. So you could say at the time this was going on, there was really no issue for me in my young brain. But I think it's so much deeper than that because he would have affected my brain and my personality in ways on a neuroscience level, <laughs> like the, the pathways of my brain. Now, one of the things that he definitely did do was introduce me to sex earlier than my body naturally would have got interested in that. So he's unlocked that part of my brain. Now, I watched a documentary that talked about now you're firing those neurons in that child's brain that shouldn't have been fired at that stage. So he's changed my personality and changed the direction of my, my life moving forward. Now, also, I think, think that the real trauma in my personal perspective and in my personal experience really starts coming when you're an adult and you look back at those childhood memories and realise, actually, you were completely exploited. You were completely taken advantage of. You were completely manipulated. And that is not okay. Because I was a young, innocent child. I had done nothing wrong to anyone. But that man knew that what he was doing to me was inhumane and wrong. And that's where the complications start to come. I think for me, the sexual abuse was more emotional and uh, traumatic psychologically. I think physically there was no violation of my body, um, so oh, I don't even think they're the correct words. See, it's so difficult to even talk about this, you know, because you're trying to you're trying to find the correct phrases to use. Um, I think because I wasn't penetrated, um, I feel like that means that I felt less violated. But as I'm trying to think on the top of my head here, that's not true at all because. A violation doesn't mean penetration. A violation means a violation of your trust, a violation of your nature, a violation of your childhood. That's really what it gets down to. It was a violation of my childhood. That should have never, ever happened. And then as I grow into an adult, I have complications on looking back at that. You feel hard, you feel hard done by. You feel um, like that's not fair. Uh, and that's where the trouble comes from. So during the abuse and immediately after the abuse, I didn't tell anyone. It was my secret and his secret. And I kept it so, so well. No friends, no teachers, no family members did I tell. 
Now I grew into a young teenager and I had this incredible set of friends. I met most of them when I joined that school when I was seven years old. We're now 13 and 14. We're like brothers basically. And it was the birth of a program called Jackass for anyone that can remember that where it was a bunch of lads always daring each other to do stuff, having a good laugh. And we were just like that, just having such a good time. Now, I never thought about what had happened. You know, I was so young, I didn't have the maturity to even address that situation. And nobody was talking about it around me. So let's say I'm 15 years old, it's now the year 2000. There's still nothing in the education system about consent, body awareness, abuse, any of that. So there's not even conversations around me to trigger those memories. Now, I believe it's when I first started getting with girls at school and I had my first kiss. And something maybe in my subconscious was like, that's not the first time you've done that. But still, I'm still so young. I'm a young teenager. There's no way I can deal with that kind of situation. So keep pushing that to the side. Keep pushing that to the side. Then I get into my early 20s and now I'm becoming, uh, growing into a man and the Jimmy Savile case comes up. Then I remember. Something will be said in conversation. Then I'll remember. And I always remember I was around a mate and there was this film called Sleepers. It's an old school film and it's about abuse, sexual abuse in boys boarding school. And I remember that coming on. I knew nothing about it. And as the film started going, I started realising what the content was about. And I made some excuse to get out there because I needed to get home because I couldn't deal with it. So you can see where I had these triggers and I had these flashbacks and things that would incite these memories. But I just wasn't of a maturity to deal with it at all. Now, it wasn't until I was 25 years old where that all started to change. Now, I started experiencing these low bouts of sadness. Now, for my personality, that wasn't usual. I was very upbeat, young man, like great career, great friends, loving life, out partying at the weekends, everything going right. But here something changed. Started experiencing these low bouts of sadness. Wasn't sure where they were from sat with them for a little while and thought, ah, it's the abuse, it's back. And this is when I knew I needed to start dealing with it. When the memories came back when I was 25, I thought to myself, what are you going to do now? Because these seem to be stronger than they've ever been before. Now, as a 25-year-old young man, you don't want to start talking about this kind of thing disgusting it's horrific you did all those disgusting sexual things with that man when you were eight years old who wants to talk about that no one so I decided that my best strategy was to just keep pushing these memories away every time they came in strong and I thought they're eventually going to disappear right because we've been from the abuse finishing at 10 years old we're now 25 years old the memories have come back 15 years we've been all right So surely we're going to be all right forever. I tried for two years. These memories weren't going anywhere. They just got stronger and stronger and stronger. The memories turned to flashbacks, turned to night terrors. Now, I kept having this same dream where I was that eight-year-old boy again. And I'm lying in my bed and I can see through my bedroom door him walking through. Now, in my dream, I recognise that it's him. I recognise what's going on. And I recognise that it's a dream. And I start shouting to try to wake myself up. And it's like, I can't get any words out because I'm in the dream. It's like a uh, uh, sound until I do finally wake myself up. 
And I'm shaking, but so relieved that it was only a dream. Now, this kept happening more and more frequent. And that's when I realised, like, I need to do something different about this because this is not working. I'm not going to be able to handle it myself. So I thought I'd tell someone. I thought I should speak to somebody about it. And who better to speak about it than one of my mates? Again, I said it. I'd met these guys at seven years old at my new school. I'm now 27. I've known them 20 years. Boys that I trusted. And that's when I went for it. And that's the first time I ever spoke out loud about the abuse. I tried quite a few times to tell a friend and I just couldn't get the words out. It was so scary. It was like the scariest thing I'd ever tried to do at that point. But I was thinking in my head, like, what's so scary about it? Like, you're just telling them about something that happened to you. You, you know, it happened to me. I was, I was an eight-year-old child. I didn't... There's no way I could have understood what I was involved in. Um, I, I'm the victim of a crime. So what's so scary about it? And I think... I still try to work out that kind of puzzle in my own head. I think... Most of it is because I knew as soon as I tell someone, as soon as I break that silence, things change forever in the relationship with that particular mate as a star. And things change for me in my own life because I've let that that out loud into the open. So yeah, I mean, I tried quite a few times, kept getting back from the pub or back from that watching a film with a mate, thinking, why didn't you just say it? And then eventually, after I tried three or four times, I eventually said it. And I said to my mate, mate, you are never going to believe what happened to me when I was younger. Now, he could have guessed 1,000 times. He would have never got anywhere near the answer. But I told him, and he gave me the perfect response. He was angry. He was sad. He was frustrated. Like, he just showed so much emotion. But... He listened to me, he gave me space to talk and he didn't make it about him and he just let me know that he will not tell anyone else unless I needed to and if I need to go and speak to anyone about it, he'll be there for me. And I woke up the next morning and I was like, boom, that is the best response I could have had to my first disclosure. I felt incredible. I felt like this weight had been lifted off my shoulders. I had this incredible confidence about the story now and that's what I moved forward with. I knew this particular friend that I spoke to was somebody who I could trust to tell. I knew that they wouldn't judge me. I knew that they would be receptive. I knew that they would listen to me. I knew that they would believe what I was saying. I've known this guy for 20 years. I could have uh, full trust in that that would be the case. So I always feel when I tell that part of my story that it would be nice if everybody had somebody who they could talk to in this way. I feel very fortunate about that. I feel very fortunate about his response to me when I told him. I just wish we could um, live in more of an open situation with with this topic and we could all understand that actually if somebody comes to you to disclose sexual abuse in their childhood... And you are the first person that they are talking to about this. Take some pride in knowing that they are just about to tell you the most scariest thing that they have ever spoken out loud about. And they chose you 
because they believed in you and you should have some honour in, in, in being the first person that they ever told and that should give you confidence to respond and just listen to them and let them speak and let them release that burden that they've been carrying around for however long. You know, I speak at these events and I get people in their 60s coming to me telling me that through hearing my story and me speak about it on stage, they wanted to tell me that something happened to them when they were a child and they have never told anyone about it. it. Happened to them when they were like 10. They're 60 now. 50 years they've been carrying that shit around with them. So yeah, I just hope that through this raising awareness and us as a society becoming more open with these conversations, because we definitely are, um, we are moving in the correct direction for people to have the opportunity, if they wish to do so, to talk about it. I wanted my family to never find out about this sexual abuse that I went through. I mean, what good is going to come out of that? My dad's going to blame himself for bringing the man into the house and trusting him, and everyone else around me is going to blame themselves for never noticing what was going on. But when I decided that I wanted to try to prosecute the man that did this to me, in the fear that he's continuing to do this to more children, statistics show us that that is what's going on with perpetrators. I read one statistic that they said that perpetrators have between 50 and 150 victims in their lifetime. So I probably wasn't the first and probably am not the last. So after just gaining so much confidence telling my story to friends and friends, I, I just thought I want to make sure that he can't continue doing this to more children. I felt some kind of responsibility uh, to find out and try to prosecute the man. And that's when I had to tell my family because they need to give statements. And trust me when I say this, it has ripped their hearts into a thousand pieces. They will never recover from this. My parents will never recover. I'm pretty sure they wake up every morning wondering when this nightmare is going to be over. And it just catches me every time. It must be so painful for them. I can't even imagine it. Imagine being a parent, feeling like you failed to protect your son, feeling like you are the reason and you can tell them as much as you like that they are not the reason for this happening. He is the reason for this happening. And that's it. You can never get through to parents who love their children so dearly, feeling like they've failed to protect them. So that has been the biggest struggle um, for everybody concerned. Least me. Because I've been dealing with this my whole life. You know, when I told them, I'd been speaking out for two or three years. I'd been uh, dealing with this in my own head for years. This, like, this is fresh and new for them. So it's tough. Um, I don't think it will ever repair itself. It's slashed people's hearts. It really has. And that will always be the saddest part of my story. And the double-edged sword to what I do online, in public, empowering people and encouraging people and inspiring people and raising people's awareness. One of the other sides to that is my family can never get away from it. They see it every day. And I've said to a few of them, feel free to unfollow me <laughs> if you want, you know, because you're seeing my posts every day and it's only rem reminding you of, of this pain. But they're so strong. My family is so strong. Um, they're here for me. 
and they're here to support this. And I think also there's some medicine in what I'm doing. You know, when they see people commenting on my story saying that they've found inspiration through my work and um, they're, they, they can move forward another step after seeing other people's stories, there's something great about that, right? Because the tragedy of what happened to eight-year-old Jeremy no longer needs to be only a tragedy. It can be a success too. And that's what I'm pushing for. My decision to prosecute was for two main reasons. The first one was to ensure that he cannot still do this to more children and that he's not still doing this to more children as we speak. Number two was I wanted to let him know that what he did will never be forgotten. And I wanted to let him know the catastrophe that he has brought to so many people's lives, those that are close to me. So I pursued this prosecution attempt. I called the police, I reported the crime, and they took down my details and I went in for a statement. Now the statement was a process. They needed to know as much information as they possibly could. And they were asking questions that I'd never been asked before. We went deeper into my story than I'd ever even really probably faced. And there was a purpose there. It's historic. It was, at that point, I reported it when I was 32 years old. So it was, you know, 22 years ago from that moment. There was no internet then. There was no emails then. There was no messages. There was no phones. There was, there was no way of recording anything. So actually there wasn't any evidence. So it was everything about my word that was so important. The police were phenomenal. They couldn't do enough. They were so supportive during the statement. However, they are exhausted and frustrated because their funding keeps getting cut so they don't have enough resources to deal with the cases properly. The example I want to give for that to be true, the police officer after my statement couldn't stop apologising because he said usually there'd be two officers in that room, one doing the questioning and one taking care of my well-being. But there's only one officer now because that's all they have the money for. So that officer has to do both jobs and they can't do the good job that they really want to do now, they pursued the investigation. They took statements from all the friends that I'd told in all the years. They took statements from my family and they, they interviewed him. And of course, he denied it. Who's admitting to this? <laughs> Nobody. You're going to your grave trying to get away with this, right? Your life is over if you admit to this. And the investigation lasted nine months. They collected everything that they could and eventually uh, it could not be taken any further. Now... I actually did some investigation to find out why or what is it that you need to start prosecuting criminals for these historic cases. And they said that it's largely more than one person speaking out against that person and they have to be from different circles. That's really the best evidence that they can find. And I said, but I had all of those people that I told you took so many statements. It's not, not enough for us to get him in court, at least, because he could have crumbled under the pressure. He could have decided that this has gone too far. I'm going to hand myself in. All of those things. And they said, we can't do that. Again, it's all down to money. We can only take the top 20% of cases to court and yours didn't make the cut. So then we have to leave it. Now, just to finish this, lots of people once... I got the result of that prosecution attempt, were saying to me, you can now move on with this, right? 
You can now put this behind you. You did everything that you could. And I feel like that's a complete misunderstanding of the situation because you don't know where he lives. You don't know if he lives around the corner from you. And if he is to attack your child next, you'll be wondering why we all stopped trying to prosecute and why we all moved on. We need to get these people prosecuted. We need to get them on the sex offenders register. We need to get them monitored with what they're doing online. We need to get their jobs monitored because otherwise this is just going to continue. This whole just leave it behind you and move on thing is nice to think about. But if we're going to start talking about protecting the future generations, then we need to change our opinion on this, I believe. So once the police called me to tell me that my prosecution attempt was unsuccessful, I felt completely lost. I was about a year into speaking out in public and my mission of ensuring that he was not still doing it to more children was over. I felt like I had nowhere to go from that. I started expressing myself on my social media platforms, expressing the anger, expressing it, my reasoning, and I felt like that would be enough. I continued doing that. I continued making short films on my YouTube channel, releasing videos, trying to be as creative as, a, creative as I could with this, with this work. But I still had an anger deep inside of me. And the anger now was about the fact that he denied it, the fact that he caused all of this pain, the fact that he'd caused all of this disruption. And when he got caught out, he wasn't man enough to say, yeah, all right, I did it. And I was truly, truly aggravated by that. Now, I sat with my mates and talked to them about it. Again, I feel so fortunate that I've got this crew of people that I can offload to and we can chat about all sorts of things in life. And this was one of them. And they said to me, like, Jeremy, what, you know, what can you do about it? You've been through the system Right, they can't help you. And I said, I just want to confront him. I just want to confront him to his face. And again, let him know that what he did will never be forgotten. And if he's still doing it to more children, that he better think twice. Because we're not standing for this anymore. Like we're stronger than ever before. And we're calling people out like enough is enough. So we chatted about it a little bit more and we just came to the conclusion that the only way for me to do this was to find out where he lived and go knock on his door. Now, I never liked this idea because it felt like taking matters into my own hands in this way. I had one foot in kind of like the criminal circle. That's how I felt about it. But I also just couldn't let it go. So I did some digging, found out where he lived and I went and knocked on his door. Now, one thing that people asked me before I did this, when we were discussing of this being an option, a couple of my mates were like, mm, if he answers, how are you gonna react? How are you gonna hold yourself? How are you gonna resist not losing control after you see this man for the first time since the abuse was going on? And I said to them, confidently that I am confident that I will not lose myself in this situation and I proved that to myself by before knocking on his door going onto my mobile phone and clicking voice, record on voice note and putting it in my pocket because I didn't want after the event whatever happened at that door to be taken out of context and him tell the you know go around saying that I did something that I didn't I had proof in my pocket and it was him that answered. 
when I knocked. And he couldn't believe it and I couldn't believe it either. And we were both shocked. And then he tried to slam the door in my face and I managed to hold it open, thankfully. And I managed to say everything that I wanted to say to him. I just kept going at him and going at him. Now, I was using explicit terms. I was saying to him, what do you think you were doing, doing all those things to my penis? How did it even give you any satisfaction, me doing that to you? I was a child, I was saying. Now, he was shouting over me, trying to drown out my voice. His wife was in the background calling the police. They arrived, they turned up, and they came for me. Three police cars, blue lights, sirens, the lot. Now, when they came at me, they were very aggressive. Of course they were. His wife's phone call to them must have sounded like I had them at gunpoint. They were screaming in the background. Now, when they came up to me, they said to me, Jeremy, can you tell me what you're doing here? And I said to them all, yes, no problem. Pointed to the door and I said, that's the man that was sexually abusing me when I was a child. And I'll come to speak to him about it. And it completely changed everything. It was like the whole atmosphere changed because, I mean, who's lying about that? Nobody, that's not something that you make up. But after they spoke with myself and him and his wife, him and his wife decided that they wanted to press charges against me. So I was handcuffed, put in the back of the police car, arrested and taken to the station. After spending the night in a cell, looking up at the ceiling, thinking this is not a good situation to be in. But I got my time in front of him. And at the very least, I've sent a shiver up his spine if he's still doing it to more children. And that was kind of mission accomplished. Now, the charges that I was facing was stalking and harassment and assault. Stalking for finding out where he lived. Harassment for the times I'd messaged him in the past asking him to come and meet me. And assault for leaving a red mark on his chest when I pushed the door open when he went to slam it on my face. He took me to magistrate's court. He was there. About five, ten metres away from me, didn't look at me once. I stared at him the whole time. He looked at the floor. We both were interviewed. His barrister tried to rip me apart. My barrister tried to rip him apart. It's the way that court system works. And I came out with a not guilty verdict for the stalking and harassment, thankfully, because they're two charges that are considered very serious in this country. But I got guilty for the assault. Now, my barrister said to me that they had to be seen to be giving you something. But it's a slap on the wrist. A £1,000 fine and a restraining order against him as well is what I got. They said because they can't be seen to be letting people go around knocking on people's doors for accusations that have already been investigated and closed. And I'm fine with that. I'm okay with that. They've got to do what they've got to do. But I did my work and I've done everything that I can to pursue him and ensure that he's not still doing it to more children, make sure that he knows that it will never be forgotten. And then that is my work done with that. Every time I disclosed to a friend or a family member, it was complete shock because they had no indication at all from my child days to my teenage days to my adult days that something like this had happened. I showed no indication throughout my decades of life. And so it was extreme confusion how this could have happened without anybody noticing. And it was complete sadness and destruction of, of everything that they uh, thought of of how life was almost so many people let out this scream of pain when I told them it was just so so hurtful to hear that somebody that they loved had been through something like this 
So a lot of people do wonder how did this happen without anybody noticing or anybody seeing. Well, it would happen in my room. It would happen when my dad was at work and when my dad returned, everything was normal again. So nobody ever actually walked in in the room that we were doing it in. Nobody ever heard me say anything about it. So it just went completely unnoticed and it did happen with ease. It was easy for him to uh, manipulate my young, young mind and because there was no education in schools, there were no conversations in homes on simple things like body awareness, consent, private areas and what to do if anybody goes near yours. Simple education that we give to children today, which I'm so, so thankful for and I feel we should all feel very optimistic about that. They know the rules around their body now and I believe that if I'd known about the rules of around my body, what areas nobody is to go near, the groin area, the chest area, the mouth area, the bottom area. And that was installed in me in education year on year. And that education progressively got more developed and became age appropriate as I grew up. I believe that would have stood me the best chance of actually saying something. Now that's not foolproof because the grooming process is the grooming process. It's extremely sophisticated and he would have known we'd be talking, uh, being talked at in schools about these things. So he would have adjusted his approach, no doubt about it. But it would have at least led us at least 1% closer uh, to me speaking out. And then we've got to take that, right? But it's not just education in schools. It's, it's everything. It's uh, open conversations in homes too. And people often say to me, are children too young to talk to them about private areas and and if anybody touches them, where they're to go, won't that ruin their innocence, that kind of conversation? And I'm like, okay, maybe to a certain degree it will ruin their innocence because you're essentially telling them that there are adults out there that could do wrong on them and they need to kind of watch out for it. So yes, maybe it is a level of ruining their innocence, but isn't it absolutely essential just to give them a better chance of preventing this happening to them before something goes too far? And a comparison that I like to make is we're okay with teaching stranger danger to young children. And I believe that to be a necessary conversation. Uh, but I also believe to a five-year-old or a six-year-old, which we are happy to have that conversation with that age group, we are essentially telling that child, don't talk to anybody that mummy or daddy doesn't know because they may take you away from us. That's essentially what the stranger danger conversation is, receiving it at that age. But we know we need to have it. It's necessary conversation. So why there is a question around the conversation around private areas with young children, I don't know. And I think part of it is because us adults think about it as a sexual conversation. Sex isn't even involved in that conversation. When you're labelling the parts of the body with the child, the arms, the legs, the nose, the eyes, the ears, you just label the private areas. Circle the groin area, circle the chest area, circle the mouth area, circle the bottom area and say, these are areas that nobody goes near. And if, you, if they do, tell mummy or daddy. Simple. That's one massive step towards the prevention of this crime from happening. I hear a lot of conversation about using the proper terminology for labelling the body parts. So using penis, using vagina, not using nicknames for them, such as a willy, for example. And lots of people are strong in thought that that will help prevent a groomer or a perpetrator using those nicknames 
to um, violate that child and actually gives the child an adult perspective on those names because we don't label any other names of the body with a nickname. I don't know, it's a bit unusual when you think about it like that, why we would name the private area or, or the private the genitals uh, a, a nickname as such. Um, now, am I for or against that? I'm impartial, I'm neutral. Um, I can see some benefit in it. Um, but I can also understand that people from older generations are going to feel very uncomfortable with that. But I do think just a conversation about what those parts are is is is, is essential because we all have them, and um, it would be nice to teach the child what the function of the thing is <laughs> that, that that they own <laughs> that, that is on their body, and just again not make it a taboo subject not make it a hidden secret that your genitals are something we don't talk about because all that's doing is making that child an easier target and when we just think rationally like when we just think um, logically it's just education that they should have anyway and again it's not a sexual conversation it's just about their body educate them give them the tools and the knowledge so that they can understand if they're in danger and that they can come to us for help one of the biggest challenges of this work that I do is trying to open the conversation on perpetrators, paedophiles, sexual abusers, sex offenders. It is so emotive that we do struggle to have the conversation. We're so angry at anybody that would commit an offence like this to children. But I do try my best with it because we can talk all day about educating children on private areas and body awareness and to tell us if something's happening. And that's a great thing for us to do, but that's not the source of the issue. That's not the source of the problem. If we're serious about commit, uh, preventing the crime from happening, we need to go to the people that are committing the crime or yet to commit the crime. Now, a lot of discussion has been about that I've come across and that I'm actually very interested in is some people are classifying this as a mental illness. And some people say that it's something that's wrong with the brain. And the thing that's wrong with it is that these people are finding children, minors, their primary sexual interest. That's the thing that excites them the most. And there's a misfiring in the brain uh, that's leading to that. And I've come across people that say that would be useful for us to classify it like that because then they can at least seek treatment for the best chance of prevention. And we're talking about preventing it before the crime's ever committed, right? We're talking about reaching these people even before they've ever committed the crime once too. So classifying it as a mental illness could provide some kind of empathy that we need to work with these people and treat these people. But then on the other side of the fence, a lot of people are angry that we would ever classify it as a mental illness because then that does draw on the empathy and a lot of people are in belief that we should not have any empathy for these people and that they are evil and horrific and they should be pushed into the corner and the light should be turned out on them. Now, I am investigating on my podcast in particular, trying to bring on experts to help us with these topics and get discussion from both sides of the coin. Now, I still don't know where I sit. and I don't have any scientific backing to send it one way or another. But what I do know is that we need to just calm the anger. In fact, we need to put the anger to the side and just talk about this. Because every person that commits a sex crime against a child commits it for the first time once. 
and we're trying to get to them before they do that. And if we're just talking and shouting at each other, we're missing the big point, and that is protecting the children that are living today. I think we need to have a really serious conversation about offenders, but also people who have thoughts towards children who have never offended yet or have never offended at all and have no intention of offending too. Because uh, that conversation is extremely important if we stand any chance of actually preventing the crime from happening in the first place. Now, we as a society shame offenders that have committed a crime against a child. Of course we do. We are horrified at that. And we do not like that and we do not accept that. So we are angry towards these people for sure. But we've also got to remember once they're convicted and they go into prison and they serve their prison sentence, when they're released, they're back into our communities. They live right around the corner from us. So we can shame them to the high hills, but we're just pushing them into a corner on their own and turning the light out on them, keeping our fingers crossed that they won't commit the offence again. That's not really working towards preventing the crime from happening again, is it? I don't think anyone would say it is. So what do we do from there? Do we do things like work alongside them? Do we monitor them once they're released from prison? Do we work with them in some sort of way? And I honestly haven't got the right language for this because as soon as I say the words work with them or help them or support them, put effort into them, never committing the crime again. People are so angry at me for suggesting any type of empathy, but I have to stand my ground with this because this isn't about whether I'm showing them empathy or not, whether I'm showing a convicted sex offender against a child empathy or not. My primary concern is to ensure that they never give in to the temptation of committing the offence again. Now on my podcast, I've had some people who work with offenders once they're released from prison and There are some great systems and processes and procedures in place, but I think we need to accept that this is bigger than just the crime being committed and then that's it. And then if we want to work a bit more before that, when we start talking about before the crime has been committed, because somebody who commits a crime against a child, a sexual crime, they commit it for the first time once, right? And did they wake up one morning and decide that they wanted to commit a sexual crime against a child? Did they wake up one morning and all of a sudden decide their fantasy was a child? I'm not sure. Maybe in some cases that to be true. But my guess is in the majority of cases, this is a something that's developed over time in someone's mind. And then they end up committing the crime. So in all of that time up until the crime, where was anyone? Right? Where were we at? Because we are so quick to get involved when the crime has been committed. And we're all celebrations when that person's been put in prison as if we've achieved something. We achieved nothing. We're late once the crime has been committed. Where were we at in all the stages before it got to that? Now, a lot of people say to me, who's going to come forward and admit they've got something like this in their head and come and tell us for support anyway? Even if there was therapy available, just as an example, none of them would use it anyway. I'm pretty sure most of them wouldn't, but some of them will. And I think offenders of this crime come in various almost categories. They're they're such a big spectrum. 
And if some of them are going to use a treatment service or a preventative service, then surely we need to have that available. And then we need to have the next option available. And then the next option available, we need a thousand options to stand a chance of this crime that seems to be happening everywhere for decades and continuing to evolve into the internet and all of these areas. If we don't start having a serious conversation about this, we stand no chance. I've come across a discussion before with people starting to think about, well, what options do we have to satisfy that person in some way so that they never actually get to a child or commit the offence against a child? People are claiming to think about this in a progressive way because we're all about prevention, right? So some people are saying about child sex dolls. So manufactured robot that looks like a doll and people who have this temptation or their sexual interest is children, that they use the doll to get rid of that and to express that sexual, sexual interest on the doll, which prevents them from acting it out on the child. Some people also talk about using escorts or using consensual environments where they go through role plays, which one of the participants acts as a child. And some people are like all for it because if that's going to give them their release and stop them from actually going for the child, then we're all happy because then the child never gets offended against. But then some people say that actually all that's going to do is encourage or develop a thirst for the real thing. So they're actually practicing that role play in real life and all it's going to want them all it's going to lead them to do, want is the real thing. So there's another discussion here where it works both ways. I don't think there's a one size fits all, um, but I do know that those are the types of discussions that are very, very uncomfortable. Who wants to talk about manufacturing child sex dolls? Who wants to talk about role play, which I may be incorrect in saying this, but it's actually called age play, um, where one person performs the role of a younger person and one uh, the older person and nobody really wants to think about this because nobody wants to think of a human being with this attraction to children in their head we don't want to know about those people but they are out there in their thousands you can't even believe it you can't even believe how popular the teen category is on porn sites. You can't even believe how popular the stepdaughter category is on porn sites. Like apparently they're the top ones rated on Pornhub. And so I know that's all legal and in the space there's nothing illegal in those spaces, but you start to you start to see that this is not just something that one person has here and there. This is like a huge thing that people have an attraction towards younger ages which leaks into being into minors and if we just don't have the conversation about all the different ways that we can try to prevent somebody from committing the crime in the first place therapy potential role play and any other any other thing that somebody can bring to the table surely we've got to at least consider it i'm not saying it's right or wrong because i don't know enough about it but we should have at least consider it it's interesting when we start to think about certain role plays or fetishes that are out there and promoted and completely accepted. Let's take one like a play rape as an example. That is a crime when done in a non-consensual way, but 
two consensual people want to act out a rape, it's no problem and that is a fetish that people know about. We're all okay with that. Then when we start to talk about people's desire when one of the participants has to act like a child, we don't like it. And I don't think we should like it. Some people may argue against me and say, but it's always, as long as it's two consensual adults, it's okay. I feel very uncomfortable with placing a child in any kind of scenario when it comes to sex. I don't know what society we would evolve to be if we started saying that that's okay for people to explore that. Again, I may be completely wrong because people, some people may say, well, if you suppress that in some people, then it's only going to heighten that behind closed doors. I don't have the answer. But to call it a fetish, um, to call it a fantasy even, and I know sometimes I use the word fantasy, maybe that's even incorrect. The fact that it's a minor, the fact that it's a child in that situation, whether it's role play between two adults or whether it's reality, it's, it's wrong. We need to leave children out of this and we need to get to the bottom of why that person's brain is feeling excited at the thought of a child. And that is definitely the best explanation that I can give right now. It's actually very, very difficult to talk about this subject area. I can talk about my story all day long. I can talk about the depths of the sexual abuse. I can talk about how I felt. I can talk about the pain it's brought my friends and my family. I can talk about that all day long. But as soon as we start talking about the offender, everything becomes really, really difficult. Um, and it's tough. A big question that I've tried to raise on my platforms in the past a number of times is, is this nature or nurture? So someone's sexual interest in children, are they born with that? Or has something in their life made them this way? Now, the common response is that nobody wants to think of a baby born with paedophilia. Nobody wants to think that a baby originates with, with evil in them and it's just waiting to act itself out when they turn into an adult. And then when we start thinking, well, then it must have been something in their life that made them this way. Yes, of course, we know there is a correlation between people who have been sexually abused as children going on to be offenders themselves. And we also know that lots of people, what turned somebody on in bed has stemmed from their childhood, whether that be legal or illegal. And so we know there's a connection there. And then we start to wonder, well, if it's something that happened in that child's childhood, in that person's childhood, let's say they were sexually abused themselves, should we have some empathy that they are sexual abusers when they're adults? I think, personally for me, I could have some empathy for somebody who recognises that they're excited for children, but I've got no empathy once they commit the crime. Once they commit the crime, you're in a different box for me. You gave into the temptation that you knew was incorrect. You knew that was immoral. You have now affected a child's life for their whole life. They're never getting away from that trauma that's imprinted on their brain and you've redirected their life in a way that wouldn't have gone down that road if you hadn't have turned up. So when you've committed the crime, for me, you're in a different box. My interest is having this discussion about before they get to that point. And as you can see from this, it's very, very complicated.
The fact that the statistic out there that I heard was 98% of people that commit a sexual crime against a child are men. Almost so interesting to me, I can't believe it. Like that's not like 60%, you know, it's like, it's like such an overwhelming majority. Why is that? So I had somebody on my podcast who talked about sexual interest and that in general, men look for a thrill or get excited by the forbidden. And that's why when you see research into how people are using porn sites, they are clicking on the next video, clicking on the next video, and it starts to go down a more extreme path and they get desensitized by one level and then they look for the next level and look for the next level. That's like almost common knowledge in my understanding. And maybe men's sex drive is, or what men desire through sex or the way that their makeup is sexually is vastly different from women. And maybe that danger, that forbidden nature um, or that power over something so innocent um, that domination over something so innocent could be the thing that's turning some offenders on. Um, and that would be extremely useful for us to know. Do you know what I've always thought? If I could have anything from the man that sexually abused me when I was a child, it would be that we used him for research purposes. It would be that we brain scanned him that we showed him images and saw how his brain react to what different, different images. An older woman, a younger woman, a younger, even younger woman, a boy, and see how his brain is working so we could research. I'd love to interview him and him not be able to lie. And because the people that are causing the offence, the people that are carrying out the offence are the people with the answers. They, they know the answer. Me and you are trying to sit here, are trying to work out all this stuff. They could tell us straight away. But we don't want to go near them. We don't want to go near them. Sometimes I feel like we're shooting ourselves in the foot with this. I wonder why it is so taboo. Child sexual abuse. I mean, I've come across people before, let's say, someone who I've never met before, and they say, um, oh, so what do you do for a living? And I say, oh... I run platforms online to do with child sexual abuse prevention and people just like don't even know where to look. Like it, it's so taboo, you can't even believe it. I mean, I've spoke to a few people and we're trying to find something that's more taboo than this and we're still searching. We, we can't find it. People don't know what to say. They feel uncomfortable. And I sometimes think, is that because like deep in our human nature, like our core, is it because this is so horrific and so inhumane. The fact that it's happening on our doorsteps is something that we actually kind of feel a bit guilty for as we go on on, on, our, on our lives trying to make them all amazing when behind closed doors all these children are going through horrific things on our planet, on our time, and we can't handle it. It's like there's, there's almost like this internal guilt that we're, we're, that we're not doing enough for young children, the innocence, the innocence of our world. And I think that just brings more, more, more taboo onto the topic. Now, when it comes to my situation and lots of situations out there where it's a man on a boy or an older boy on a boy, and that boy is now an adult and wants to speak out, I think it carries a kind of weakness for that man. They feel like they were 
betrayed, exploited, manipulated, and that in some way they're, it's embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing to, to, to talk about that kind of thing, you know? It, it's not very manly, it's not very strong, but I think that's the wrong perception. I think it's the wrong way to look at it. That is one of the big drivers for why I'm so open about my story. Because actually, I would love it if other men were watching and being like, that happened to me too. But he's actually showing me that if you get to the other side of that and you can speak openly and powerfully about it, that's so strong. You, It's so overpowering. It's so strong compared to the actual crime. It's almost like we turn it on its head, you know. So you should be proud of, it's not you should be proud that you went through that crime. You should be proud you're still here today to talk about that, you know. It's like almost like, that's like one of the most horrific things that could happen in your childhood. It's given you this suit of armour to go forward, forward in life with, you know. And maybe we could frame it like that and it would help a lot of people. This has been the most incredible journey of my life. I feel so fulfilled. I feel so challenged. I feel so encouraged to communicate this topic in the most creative ways that I can find and open the discussion that we need to have. With my story, I feel more and more free to talk about it and to see how interested people are in understanding it more. And, you know, when parents write to me saying, you know, they found me online, they're now following me and they've spoken to their young children off the back of some of my videos, just talking about private areas. I'm like, oh, come on. We're putting this to such good use, you know. Um, I'd love to go back 30 years now and speak to that eight-year-old boy and say, I'm so sorry for what you're going through, but we're going to do something amazing amazing with with this this trauma that you're going through you know and we're doing that you know we're doing that my story started as just my story it's now inspiring others to tell their story which is inspiring others to tell their story and now I'm releasing podcast episodes talking about offenders this tricky topic and talking about trauma and talking about what we're going to do about all of this situation it's it's it's, it's actually just phenomenal I feel so engrossed I, I feel very fortunate too and all credit to everyone that's ever given me an encouraging word in the past because I can't take credit for all of this you know it's not my credit to take it's like this has been a team effort since the start I mean the response to my first disclosure, the response to all the disclosures after that, the police help trying to prosecute him, my family being supportive, all the followers that I've got online just encouraging me every step of the way. And that's not just me doing all of this. This is us. This is a team effort. And and I truly believe there's like it's, it's getting really strong now and, and I feel so incredible about it all. My advice to anybody that's going through sexual abuse right now is... I would encourage you to tell somebody immediately. There are people around you, whether it be your friends, your family, safeguarding at your school, safeguarding at your workplace, that are there to help you. And there's incredible processes and procedures these days that they will go through the necessary steps to get you out of that situation. Like, we want to help you. Now, to any adults that are reflecting on what happened to them and in their childhood, I hear you and I see you. This is a 
the most challenging thing to ever occur in your life. And I say that, you know what, there are so many avenues for you if you wish to take them. There are groups online that you can join. There are face-to-face groups that you can join. There are charities with anonymous phone lines that you can call. You could select somebody that's close to you that you trust, but you don't actually have to do any of that if you don't want to. If you feel like you want to release your story, you could even just write it down on a piece of paper and then revisit it a month later and write it again and make sure when you read it back to yourself, you feel feel strong and then you know you've written it correctly. But even if you don't want to release your story, you just want to reflect on what happened or just think about it for a moment and just park it again. Do what's good for you, but make sure it's in your good intention. I would also say don't push yourself too far. Um, Seek a professional, seek a friend um, and take some some action um, because you're more powerful than you think you are. To anyone out there that's experiencing sexual abuse right now, I would encourage you to tell somebody immediately. You could tell a friend, you could tell a parent, you could tell safeguarding professionals at your school or your workplace because everybody is there to help you. We want to help you get out of that situation immediately and get you safe. And we are here to support you throughout that process. So again, I encourage you, if you are going through sexual abuse right now, to tell somebody immediately. So I'm so pleased that I finally managed to break into schools, but it is not plain sailing. It took me two years of knocking on schools' doors, presenting my work, telling them what I wanted to say for somebody to give me a chance. Now, the first school that gave me a chance, they decided that they liked my work online, but they wanted to see what I was talking about because this is such a sensitive topic. Everybody wants to make sure that everything is kind of okay for what they want to present. And they brought me in to speak with their teachers. And I went in and I did my best. And at the end of the presentation, two teachers came up to me and said, thank you for making such an uncomfortable subject, comfortable for us to listen to. We now feel more confident to deal with the potential dangers or disclosures that are gonna come up in the future. And I thought, I nailed it. I did so well, I could feel the energy in the room. Now the next morning I wake up to an email in my inbox and they invited me to speak with their students. Year 9s, 10s, 11s and 12s. Now, I got everything ready and of course I deliver this presentation in an age-appropriate way depending on the age group. Now what I do, I usually have about 45 minutes with them. The first half an hour is a storytelling exercise and then the last 10 or 15 minutes is a Q&A. Now the first year group that I did was the Year 9s and it was a predominantly boys school so it's mostly boys in the room and I thought, you know what, when I get to the Q&A part of the session Nobody's really going to put any hands up and ask questions in front of everyone else, right? Because this is such an uncomfortable topic for their age group as well. So they come in, they settle down, I start telling my story and I can see them getting a bit engrossed. You know, I start talking about the abuse and they look a bit uncomfortable. Then I start talking about my career in engineering and they're all like, oh, that's pretty cool. I talk about my drive for Formula One and now I've got some of the boys' interest. And then I start talking about prosecution. It's really got them hooked. And then I talk about what I would have done if I was eight years old, knowing what I know now, who I would have gone to speak to, because essentially I want to encourage anyone sitting there to go and speak out. Then we got to the Q&A part. Now, what I'd done for the previous week is I'd prepared something for the Q&A as a filler, because I didn't think anybody would answer any, ask any questions. But you should have seen them. Half of them put their hand up. They wanted to know about this, and they wanted to know about that. They were so engrossed. 
And I walked away because it was the same result with the year 10s, 11s and 12s. And I walked away thinking, you know what? These kids are more ready for this conversation than we are as adults. It's us adults that have got the awkwardness around this conversation. They haven't got the awkwardness about this. They want to address it. They were talking about offenders. They were talking about how it feels to be a victim. One of them would ask a question. Another one would pipe up. It created this conversation. It, the energy was phenomenal. Now, this school actually then went and recommended me to a few other schools, and I managed to get into there too. So it's going really, really well now. I've got a few more bookings coming up, but it's still a trouble. It's still a trouble because teachers are so hesitant. They don't know whether I'm going to trigger somebody. They don't know how I'm going to, if I'm going to upset somebody. They don't know if the parents are going to agree with it. And I'm like, come on. This is the most important conversation that I can bring to these students. And I'm not trying to teach them anything. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a lecturer. I'm just somebody with real lived experience that wants to come and tell my story. And even if it's not going to reach the people that are going through sexual abuse right now. At the very least, my story with the engineering career and the speaking out for the first time and telling more friends and prosecution, it's a story of inspiration. So I can let those children know that if they're going through something hard right now, it's not the end for them and it's not gonna be the end of them and they can have a successful life following that. And that's all I want to do. It's a constant struggle, but I'm going to keep pushing because my main audience has to be those young people. I can really inspire them. Something that I feel we have got nowhere near right in the system in this country is the sentences of convicted sex offenders, people who have com committed sex crimes against children. The sentences are petty. In fact, they're embarrassing. Some people don't even get sentences. And... We need to talk about this and I think we need to take this seriously because the punishment is not big enough to be a deterrent for most people. Now, a lot of people talk about life sentences for any crime of any level against a child of a sexual nature. Now, I think in an ideal world, this would be something we could pursue. But just for people's interest, I just want to say that I've done a bit of research on this and life sentences are not possible in this country for the rape of a child. And the reason for that is because in this country, the capacity, the prison capacity that we have is 100,000 and it's already full. Now on the sex offenders register, there are 80,000 people. Now let's say half of them committed a crime against a child. That's 40,000 people. Where are we going to put them all? And that's not even thinking about the cost of putting somebody in prison for life. And if cost shouldn't be an issue, I wonder how many people would be happy if their taxes got raised to put people in jail for life. I don't think many people would be happy with that. So let's stop saying it all, right? That's not possible. Life sentences are not possible. Higher sentences, maybe. But again, this leads to this conversation about, well, okay, if life sentences aren't possible and short sentences are given, once that person is released from prison, we need to be monitoring them and working with them in some way to reduce the chances that they're going to re-offend because that's what we're after. We're after 0% re-offense. It's actually really interesting because I was watching the news a little while ago and I saw that the government had set targets for things like emissions and climate change and by 2030 we were going to have some percentage that we were aiming for and I think that's all great. I support that. But it's funny how we don't have any targets for 
child sexual abuse crimes. Um, and we can't have any. And it's really weird because if you're thinking, well, what do you mean we can't have any? Well, what, what are we going to say? We're okay with 10,000 children being offended against by 2030. And then by 2040, we're only going to have 5,000 offended against. No, we can't have targets. We want zero, right? We want zero percent. So it's like we are in the stone ages with this conversation. I truly believe it. We're so technologically advanced with everything we've got. But when it comes to this conversation about children being sexually abused or molested by adults, we are in the stone ages. And I want to change that. Okay, so I wonder what you thought about that. I know there are some errors in the way that I talk, the way that I put sentences together. I know that I repeated myself here and there and some of the story is not in the exact sequence that it actually unfolded. But I still think it's a quality piece of work and a quality podcast. And if you got to the end of this, I'm sure you agree too. So we're just going to keep trying to move forward with this. I'm trying to articulate myself in the best way. And yes, I am hypercritical. And I think sometimes I need to be with these formats because I just want to improve and be the best that I can. Keep following this podcast. Please stick your comment in the comment section. Please do rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, etc share it with a friend and then we can really spread the word thank you